And uh, the, the new series here is called Daniel. I think this is supposed to work. When I click it, things are supposed to happen, right? Daniel's story is the name. There we go. And our first is an introduction. Um, exiled. Daniel, he doesn't just appear in Babylon. But the story begins in Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And with some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And you heard about all this stuff that happened there in Second Chronicles. It's not a, a pretty picture. Daniel's story begins with discomfort. It, it begins with a long hike, um, some several hundred miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. It, it begins with forced um, indoctrination into some false religion. It begins with really a not, not a good experience. And so you have to ask a question. You have to ask, who's the God that would allow his people to be exiled into some foreign country to, to, to not, not just be running away for their lives, but to be forced into to some situation that they didn't want? Who is the God that would allow his own precious, holy, sac- sacred vessels that were used for his worship to be put in a, in a foreign heathen God's temple? Who is this God? And isn't that the question we need to ask every time we open the Bible? What does this tell me about God? And, and then the next question is, what am I going to do about it? So we're going to explore this. And in order to understand these questions, we really need to go back in time and not, not with Daniel's story. Uh, we'll go behind the scenes to figure out how he got to Daniel's story. And then next week we can look at Daniel's story. But, but this one is, well, in order to understand it, we have to go back to the time when Israel was in the land, um, kind of in between Egypt and Canaan on their way in the desert, and, uh, and God gave them some really important messages during this time. It had only been a short time since the people had left Egypt. Not very long at all, and, and they're camping near this mountain that, uh, that God had given the Ten Commandments from, and He'd come with His glory and whatnot, and the people of Israel didn't understand Him. They didn't know Him. Many of them thought that he was just a more powerful version of the gods of Egypt. And those who knew differently didn't, still didn't understand who he really was. And so God has, he, he has a tool that he wants to, to use. And he says in, in Exodus 25 verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And, and look at the difference here. The, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Canaan, the gods of all these other places, they're off somewhere. You might remember a story where, where a prophet is standing on the mountain and he's scoffing at the, uh, the, the Baal, the priests and stuff of Baal. And he, and he says, why isn't your God answering you? Maybe he's, maybe he's off um, hunting. Maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> like he, he's scoffing at them because they don't have a God who's present. But this is a God, a God who wants to live with his people, intimacy, um, connection, uh, presence. He wants to be there. And, and you might remember, he told the great, 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 great grandfather of the Israelites that are there in, in the wilderness. Um, he, he says, 
Uh, this in Exodus 9, um, uh, sorry, before we get to, to Abraham, in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he makes this point that they're not just supposed to be this people that God dwells with, but they're supposed to have a purpose. And he says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests. This is their, their whole focus. The purpose is for them to be priests. If you were in, in Egypt, the priests would be this elite class that they got exemption from taxes and they got um, a payment from the, 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 the royal treasuries and they had power and influence. They could move the, the, the political... Um, decisions and, and laws in the nation if they wanted to. They are not a nation of priests. Egypt had priests that were elites. But God asks or invites, tells the Israelites that if they follow him, that they will be a nation of priests. And priests are supposed to be, they're supposed to be the ones that, that give the edicts from God. You know, they're the ones that are supposed to communicate what God's about, uh, the, how to worship him and all this stuff. And really the, the, the stuff of life, all the basic stuff of life, that's what priests are supposed to do. And he wants them to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. And, and the purpose would be that God's going to impact the entire world. You remember back, uh, uh, I mentioned Abraham, the great, 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 great grandfather of these guys. God had made him a promise. And he said that through you, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And, and so he, he does that through Israel. He makes them this promise. If you'll follow me, then I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to bless the nations through you. And, and so he gives them all these different things, you know, talking about obeying him and following him and keeping his covenant. Uh, he gives them all kinds of details about that. The sanctuary's there and there's um, various things that they're supposed to do. But among them, and one, one of the more significant things is the Sabbath. Each week, they're to rest. And in fact, they, the, this rest was accompanied by a miracle that reminded them every single week that God was the one who provides for them. And, and you might remember uh, back in Exodus 15, when Abraham is first engaging with this covenant, where, when God is saying, I'm going to make you a great nation, and he, he points to the stars and says, look, your, king, your kids are going to be as many as the stars of heaven, that, that God made a promise to Abraham the, he asked him to do some things, but God's promise was that through him, the Messiah would come and that he would make him this great nation. These are the promises of God. God's going to do the stuff that the infertile Abram can't. He can't make a great nation for himself. He can't bring the Messiah. God's going to do that. But he does ask Abram to do a few things. He, he asked Abraham to, to um, not intermarry with foreigners, with heathens. He asks him to circumcise his children. Um, and and he, he asks him to follow him. Go this direction, he says, right? Uh, now, when you think about this, the stuff that he asks Abraham to do isn't really that difficult. I mean, when God points to the direction of Canaan, it's not hard to figure out that's where I, I should go, right? 
And, and you can choose, I'm going to either step forward or I'm going to stay put or I'm going to go back in a different direction. You get to choose. It's not hard stuff. Uh, circumcising your kids, well, it might not be fun. Um, it's, not, it's not a really difficult thing to do. It, it, and it's, it's one of those things that distinguishes them in a, in a way it says we're different from everybody else. We're supposed to be that kingdom of priests that he was he, he tells Israel that they're going to be this kingdom, right? And he, he wants them to be unique, set apart. He wants them to have, and the word that I want you to remember is allegiance. He asks Abraham to give him his allegiance. Um, and so when the Israelites come out of their captivity in Egypt, um, it, it, was, um, it was the same kind of thing with them. God invites them to give him their allegiance. And this little thing about the Sabbath and, and all the various ceremonies of the, the sanctuary, they were about allegiance. See, God had promised to do all the hard stuff. Uh, the, the sanctuary was about pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, who would take away their sins. They weren't, they weren't supposed to do that themselves. They were, supposed to, they were supposed to just bring the lamb. It's not hard to do that. They can't solve their sin problem, but they can bring a lamb, right? And, and they're supposed to keep the Sabbath. They can't do the work, and so God invites them to do the rest. That's something that you can do, right? You can rest. And, and so he invites them to do little things that are not hard, and, and by doing that, they give God their allegiance. And God promises to do all the hard stuff. So when they come out of Egypt, it shouldn't have been a surprise that God separates the water and he solves the Egypt, Egyptian army problem. It shouldn't be a surprise that he provides manna for them and water out of a rock. It shouldn't have been a surprise because God is the one who does the hard stuff. He promises to provide. He promises to protect. In one place, he even says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the work of driving out the Canaanites that I'm sending you into their land for, right? It says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all, my, all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. God promises to do the hard stuff. And you might remember the, the story of Jericho. They get to the border of Canaan, the first city they're supposed to conquer, and, and God does all the hard stuff. He conquers the city for them. He even tells when they get to the part of the kings that they shouldn't have done, but when they get to the part of the kings, he says, don't make armies, standing armies for yourself. Don't build up um, uh, you know, lots of, of horses and chariots or implements of war. I'm going to be your victory. I'm going to be the one that, that leads you in battle. And, and you see Gideon, when it, when it comes down to it, Gideon has 300 men to defeat 32,000. Is it hard for God to do the work that he said? No, but it would have been impossible for Gideon to do that work. God promised to do the hard stuff. All they had to do was keep their allegiance with him circumcise their kids, don't marry the heathen, keep the Sabbath, right? Simple stuff. It's not really hard. But they didn't, did they? They intermarried with the uncircumcised heathen. Uh, they worshiped the gods of the heathen. They abandoned God's sanctuary and, his serv and its services that reminded that he would be the one to do the hard stuff. Right? They abandoned that. They, they offered their children Molech, burning them on the altar to false gods, as if they could do the work of saving themselves by giving up their children when God had promised to give up his. 
They established armies and chariots and, 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 and had these implements of war, and they, they tried to be just like the other nations. They tried to do the hard stuff, and it, and it didn't really work out for them very well. If you go to the book of Judges, you'll read all about um, how they, they broke this covenant. And, well, what is God's response? When they break the covenant, what should they do? I mean, think about it. In order for God to bless the nations and fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, Israel had to remain faithful. How does God fulfill his promise if he has a nation that don't ally ally themselves with him, that that don't have any allegiance to this God of salvation? What is he going to do? Well, he made a promise. And... It's found in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 26. It's a fascinating chapter, and if you've read the chapter before, you've probably not read it in the context that we're going to study it today. You've probably read it in, a, in, in some curious prophetic context. We're, we'll get to that in a second. But, but first, let's look at it from the context of the Israelites and how they would have been experiencing it. Notice how he doubles down on his promise to do the hard stuff. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rain in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Could they do any of that themselves? No, God promises to to do the hard stuff, to provide for them. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. This sounds really good, doesn't it? I will give peace to the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before your sword." That's good stuff. I like this chapter so far. Then then it says, I will make my dwelling among you. Didn't God want to live with them? Let them make me a sanctuary that I can dwell with them. And he he says this again. He doubles down on the promise. I will make my dwelling with you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is great stuff. But what if you don't obey my law? What if you reject? What if you rebel? What then? And he he turns to the consequences of rebellion in verse 14. He says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commands, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever, and consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemy shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. You don't need to go very far in history to find this experience in the Israelites' story. They settle in the land of Canaan. They rebel against the covenant by forgetting the sanctuary and worshiping other gods and doing whatever they want to. And, and uh, they don't keep the Sabbath, much less the Sabbaths of the land that God had asked them to do. And, and so God gives them over to the Philistines and the Amorites and the, and, and the Hittites and the Hivites and all these other people that are in that area. And, and they get discomfort. It's not nice for them anymore. And so they start to call out to God. And they say, God, help us. And what does he do? Well, he, he sends Deborah 
and then Samson and Gideon and Samuel. And those are just a few examples of judges that brought them back. As soon as they asked God for help, he sent somebody to call them back to him. Obey God, he does the hard stuff. That's the promise. Break off your allegiance with God, and you got to deal with the hard stuff on your own. It's not a real complicated formula here. (laughs) If they don't have God, they don't have protection, they don't have blessing. The natural results of sin are are just ever-present. If they have God, then He's going to take those nasty beasts out of their land. He's going to give them victory over their enemies. He's going to provide for them uh, with food. Like, this is is a blessing God has has, uh, promised them. Because these were the people through whom God had, was going to bless the world with the Messiah, He had to fulfill this covenant. He had to keep this promise. And if he didn't, the consequences wouldn't just be for the Israelites. The whole world would be affected. This is big stuff. And so God's going to, he's going to step into this a little bit more. Because what if they keep rebelling? What if they don't repent when God gives them some hardship? What if they don't keep their allegiance with God? And, and so if they, if they experience this hardship and don't turn back to God, then, then this is what they experience. In Leviticus 26, 18, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Now, if you have a King James or New King James Bible, you might open up to this text, Leviticus 26, 18, and, and you'll read these words that he'll discipline them again seven times more for their sins. And some people, having read that, conclude that this is a a time prophecy. And I just want to say, no, it's not. There is no such thing in Leviticus 26. The word here is sevenfold. It's just a number, and it's an adjective, meaning uh, intensity or um, uh, it it has something to do with um, the quantity. It's not about time. And if you, if you wanted to, you could compare this with Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar has seven times pass over him. But there's two words there, the seven, which is the number, and then times, and that's the Hebrew word inan. And, and that just means seven years. And if you go to Daniel 9, you'll see uh, 70 sevens or 70 weeks. And it's a, another word for a time period, a, a week um, so it's, it's pretty clear, 70 weeks. And then if you go to Revelation, you have a time, times, and a half a time, or a year, two years, and a half a year, so three and a half years. And those are all prophetic times. We know that they're prophetic. But if you come here to Leviticus 26, there's no inan, there's no week, there's nothing that would suggest that this is a time period. And instead, everything is about intensity. If you don't if you don't repent the first time I've brought hardship on you, then I'm going to bring more discipline on you, seven times more than it was before. And, and so we, we get the focus that this isn't about how long, and there's four periods of seven times here. If it was seven times, then it was 10,000 years of punishment. I think that that might be a little bit beyond what God is expecting. So what he's saying is if you don't repent, then more punishment will come, and, and it, it gets gnarly 
He says, if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again seven times for your sin, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. One more verse. And you, your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of your land shall not yield their fruit. Heavens like iron, earth like bronze. What does this sound like to you in the, in the Israelite experience? Sounds a lot like Elijah and Ahab, doesn't it? Three and a half years of drought. And, and when, you, when you read that story of Elijah, you see exactly what Leviticus 26 was inviting, Repentance. Elijah says, there's no, going to be no rain until I say so. Three and a half years go by, and the drought is so severe, everything's dead or dying. And he calls the people up to that mountain, and he calls them to repent. He calls them to see, is God God, or is this Baal thing God? And, and God, he provides the fire for that sacrifice. He laps up all the water. It's, it's completely burned up. Baal? Baal couldn't do the hard stuff. God was saying, listen, I'm the one that does the hard stuff. Please come back to me. I will help you. I will be your God. I will dwell among you. I will walk with you. Please repent. Thankfully, the people did at that point, but, but it wasn't a thorough repentance. It wasn't something that lasted a long time. Uh, the people held on to idolatry, and, and while they're, they're, they were coming back to the services of God, they kind of held on to the idols at home. And some of them even had groves that they set up on their farms where they had idol, idols that they would worship and the whole community would come in. And so God continues on in Leviticus 26, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. Over and over and over again, God, God brings discipline upon this rebellious um, Israel and rebellious Judah, because by now they're separated into these two sets, the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. One king after another in the northern tribes rebels against God, refuses to repent. One prophet after another calls them to repentance, and they just don't. They kill the prophets. They put them in jail. They send them to, into exile. And so God allows disease and wild animals and foreign nations to come in, and uh, they settled into their heathen practices so much that God allowed them to be scattered to the winds. And the only thing that was left were the heathen living in those northern tribes. And so you just had Judah. Judah had this interesting dynamic. Bad king, good king. Bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. And, and every time you had a good king, they called people back to God. Come back to worship God. And they'd establish the worship of God again. And, and there's this one specific king towards the end. His name is Josiah. And if, if you're a kid, you'd know him as that boy king. How many of you are eight? Any eight-year-olds? Nine-year-olds? Oh, we got a few nine-year-olds. Seven-year-olds. We got a couple seven-year-olds. Can you imagine being king at eight? That is a young kid. But he's a kid that has been taught to worship God by the priest. And so he brings back the worship of God, and he restores the temple. At one point, they find the book of the law. 
that they're supposed to read every seven years uh, at, at the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and they find the book of the law, and, and he has it read to him, and he weeps, and he realizes what we're reading right now, that if they reject the, the allegiance to God, that God will withdraw his blessing, and he pleads with God, please don't leave us now. And he calls the people back together, and he himself, as the king, reads this in front of the people and calls them back to God, back to repentance, and many do. They they do the Passover service and bring back the, the, the Sabbath and all these things that they're supposed to be doing, but even a king doesn't have influence over the what happens in your home, and the people did not turn back to God. And so God said by a prophetess Huldah that even though the king was a loyal king. That, that, and, and God would hold back the punishment until after his death that Israel would still have to face what he promised in Leviticus 26. And now, we're back to what happens in Daniel chapter 1. You see, Josiah died in battle against Pharaoh Necho, Pharaoh was coming to battle the, uh, the Assyrians, and for whatever reason, Josiah decided he was going to go and do battle. And, and, and Pharaoh Necho says, this isn't your battle, Josiah. God has told me to do this. Please don't fight me. But he ends up dying in battle, fights him anyway, ends up dying in battle. And, and the people establish as, as king his, his son, um, his younger son, uh, Jehoahaz. But they'd just been beaten by the Egyptians. The Egyptian takes over, and he says, no, I don't want Jehoahaz. He, he sends him into, into captivity um, down to Egypt, and he sets up Eliakim and asks him to change his name. And so he changes his name to Jehoiakim, which has something to do with Yahweh, um, is, is ruler or something like this. But Jehoiakim was not a follower of God, even though he has this connection with his name. And, and he, um, he has to pay taxes to Necho, and, and he, so he raises a property tax. And the property tax is ridiculous. And he gives the money to, to Necho, but then he takes the extra that he raised, and he builds this big palace. Oh, Jeremiah had some nasty things to say about Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim did not follow God. And three years after the, the overthrow of uh, Josiah by, by uh, Pharaoh Necho, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Necho at the city of Carchemish. And that was the end of, of Egypt's fighting. They, they really couldn't uh, raise an army that was effective ever again. And Nebuchadnezzar took over what had been the Assyrian um, domain. And it was at this point that he sent some people down to Judah to establish his reign in Judah. And, and uh, he took over the, the payments, you know, that, that Jehoiakim had been paying to Necho. But he also decided that he would leave some people there and take some people with him. And that's when Daniel was taken to Babylon. And so you have Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. That's the beginning of Daniel's story. But Daniel, he's in Babylon, and so we don't get much of what's the rest of the story that's happening uh, back in, in Judah. So I want to tell you the rest of that story real quick. 
Because we're really looking at Leviticus 26 and figuring out what God is doing. Who is this God that allows these people to be sent into captivity? And let me just tell you that Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking, and taking Daniel is not the worst thing that's going to happen to the people. You see, Jeremiah is this whole time talking to um, Jehoiakim and all the leaders, and he's prophesying, submit to Babylon. This is God's judgment. Submit to God's judgment and things will go better for you. And what do they do? Oh, no, they don't, they don't submit. He tries to make allegiances with, back with, with the Pharaoh in Egypt. He tries to make um, things go his way, and, well, he just doesn't submit. And, and when we are, the basic things God asks us to do is to follow him, right? To Abraham, it was to follow him into Canaan. For the Israelites at this time, it's to follow him in the punishment he's allowing. Because what they really need more than anything is just to take the bitter pill and repent. If they refuse that, that hardship, what they're doing is refusing repentance. They're refusing allegiance to God. And in verse 27 of Leviticus 26, he says, If in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies will settle in it. And, and it shall be appalling at it. Uh, they shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities shall be waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Allegiance. The last chapters of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Lamentations all tell the story of what's going on in, in Judah at this time. And uh, if you're going to do some reading, read those all together. They make more sense when you read them together. Jeremiah tells us how um, Jehoiakim was such a bad leader, and then he describes uh, the, the next things that happen. And in, in 2 Chronicles 36... Verses 12 to 13, we read that Jehoiakim, his, uh, he was taken by Nebuchadnezzar because of his rebellion, and Nebuchadnezzar set up a third son of Josiah. His name, Zedekiah, the changed name was Zedekiah, and, uh, and, and the Bible says that Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Do we ever do that? Stiffen our neck when we're faced with hardship and asked to, to repent? Hmm. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the admonitions or abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. If you read Ezekiel, you'll read some horrible stuff that was happening. They were not just worshiping idols 
out in their fields. They brought the idols into the temple itself, and they were worshiping the sun god, and they were worshiping Tammuz, and they were worshiping all kinds of gods in the, the sanctuary, in the temple itself. And so, in spite of Jeremiah's counsel, in spite of his calls for repentance, in spite of him pointing their, their eyes towards, uh, towards heaven, they decided, Zedekiah, the leaders, and all the people, to rebel against Babylon. Think about that national pride. The national pride that says, we're the best. We should, we should be the rulers of the world, right? Nobody can take our, our um, self-rulership, right? Nobody can rule over us. And so they, they have this national pride instead of the humility that would lead them to repentance. Nebuchadnezzar sent his army to besiege Jerusalem. They quickly overcame the surrounding strongholds and cities. They set up siege works against the, the walls of Jerusalem. Some of them, they would raise these, uh, the, these towers that would allow the, the people on top of the tower to be um, face-to-face with the people on top of the walls. And they would fight the armies of Israel from these towers. Some of the towers had battering rams in them. And for 18 months, they battered the walls of Jerusalem until they finally breached the wall. Zedekiah, like the, the, um, the word just left my mind. Somebody that runs away scared. <laughs> coward, thank you. Like the coward that he was, he runs away. He ends up getting caught anyway. His eyes get poked out. That wasn't a good experience. He, he does not have a good experience. And you know, he could have, it could have been better for him. He could have reigned a long time. They could have stayed there in Jerusalem if they had submitted, if they had repented. But no, they didn't. They continued to rebel. And so what, what God said in Leviticus 23 happened. 18 months of being besieged, they were so hungry, they started eating each other. 18 months of being besieged, so much disease was there. It was, it was not a good experience for Jerusalem. And the people that were left when that wall was breached... Nebuchadnezzar sent word that they should all be prepared to be deported and taken to Babylon. And so they were lined up and marched out. And the people that were left were only the poorest of the people that could care for the the land a little bit. And Jeremiah was one of those that was left. Now, if if you've had this experience, hardship and pain and struggle, and, and you might be asking, why God? Why would you allow this? And if, if you'd listen to the Holy Spirit in the back of your mind, you'd hear God saying, because I want you to repent, please come back to me. You can't bear the hard stuff on your own. Come back. Jeremiah, he experienced all of this stuff, and, and he should have been uh, above everybody else feeling hopeless because the people were so stubborn and hard-hearted. But this is what he says in Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Hmm. Wait for the Lord. That's the best thing we can do. In our rebellion, in our fighting against God, in our doing it ourselves, we're not waiting on God. 
We're stepping into His role and trying to do the hard stuff ourselves. And God invites us to wait on Him, to rest in Him, to put our allegiance on Him. We're beginning this uh, series, Daniel's Story. And in Daniel's story, we're going we're gonna to look at all kinds of stuff about not, not just the captivity of, of um, Israel, but we're going to look at the promised Messiah. And not just the promised Messiah that would save uh, the world, but we're going to look at the, the, the return of, of God's kingdom to the earth and the overthrow of all of the, the heathen nations. We're going to look at some exciting stuff. And I just want to underscore something. Daniel's story is not about prophecy. Daniel's story is about the God of the universe. And when we look at prophecy, we're going to end up seeing some beautiful things about God. Daniel's story is a story about our salvation. But more than, more than anything, Daniel's story is a story of the God who does the hard stuff and a story of a God who invites us to allegiance, to follow him, to obey him, and the simple things he's asked us to do. It's not circumcision anymore, although please don't marry non-believers. Come on, that doesn't work out. If you're, if you're a young person, this is my admo- admonishment to you. Go to a school that will introduce you to other young people that believe in Jesus and marry them. One of them, not multiple, just one. Parents, if you're worried about the cost of college, or kids, if you're worried about how much college is going to put you in debt, please, it is worth it to marry somebody who's good. They they called it for a while Southern Matrimonial College, right? And then Walla Walla, what was that one? This seemed like, what was it? Western Wedding College. See, there's a reason for that. God says don't marry an unbeliever, because when you do, your, your allegiance to him is drawn away. He says, do the simple things. I've got the hard stuff. Stop trying to save yourself. That doesn't work. Stop trying to provide for yourself. I promise to do that. But please do the simple things. Give me your allegiance. So I'm going to invite you today to do the same thing that that, uh, Elijah invited the Israelites to do. To choose. If Baal is God, Elijah said, then choose him. Now, we don't have Baal today, but we've got the world. We've got our own ideas of stuff, right? We've got our own desires, our own passions and and whatever that that fight against God. And and I would just say, if if they can save you, then go for it. Go after them. But I just want to say, they won't. They can't. They never will. And so, the alternative is, if God be God, then serve Him. Put your allegiance on Him. So, I'd like to invite you 